0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. A recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a decrease in cancer diagnosis by 46% of six of the most common types of cancer. Here to discuss this with us today is Dr. Nabil Wasif, the Chair of Surgical Oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Welcome Dr. Wasif for being here today. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
2: Well, I love to learn the things that I get to learn by by speaking to all of our experts. And I'm. Um, this is something we've read about, that people have been going to the doctor less. So I think it makes sense that they're also going less to have um, some of their major medical um, investigations performed. What accounts for the decrease in cancer diagnosis during the pandemic?
3: I think time will really tell us what the underlying reasons are, but we can speculate that putting off routine screening tests at this time because of the pandemic means that early cancers are not being detected in the frequency that we usually see them. And patients who are having mild symptoms uh, may not be seeking medical attention, whereas under normal circumstances, they may have gone to see their doctor right away and have uncovered a problem early instead of writing it out.
2: The JAMA study looked at six um, types of cancers that are common in the United States breast, colorectal, lung, pancreatic, gastric, and esophageal. For which types of cancer is routine screening recommended?
3: So currently in the United States, uh, routine screening is recommended for breast cancer with mammography, uh, cervical cancer with pap smears, colon cancer with colonoscopy, and for smokers, uh, CT scans. Uh, for lung cancer.
2: And I think some would say, well, it's only a few months that we've been putting this off, but what would the risk to an individual be if they put off their cancer screening and then have a, have a cancer diagnosed later?
3: So the main risk is that instead of a cancer being picked up early on a screening test before the patient's having any symptoms, it gets diagnosed at a much more advanced stage when the patient actually has symptoms and are forced to seek medical attention. Now, this has really important implications because we know that for most cancers, your best chance at cure is when we pick it up early. And as the cancer grows undetected, it has more opportunity to spread. Once the cancer spreads, then we really lose that opportunity, that chance to cure that patient.
2: So is it fair to say then, Dr. Wasif, that that certain options to treat cancer may not be um, available if someone does not have their cancer diagnosed at an earlier stage?
3: Well, we may still have the same treatment options, but Mm -hmm. those treatments are just less effective.
2: Is it safe to go to your provider for a colonoscopy or a mammogram, both of which you mentioned? is, Is it safe to do that right now?
3: I cannot emphasize this enough. Yes, there's a risk from COVID, but taking simple, sensible measures that everyone by now is educated on, masking, hand hygiene, social distancing, really reduces that risk to acceptable levels. In fact, you're probably taking a bigger risk on by skipping your screening.
2: Are people delaying just the screening um, portion of this, or are there people who are delaying their actual cancer treatment because of COVID-19?
3: So the good part of this is that the cancer treatment itself is in the hands of Physicians and the physicians realize that delaying cancer care and treatment has negative impacts on the patient. So, for example, if you have surgery for colon cancer and you have been recommended chemotherapy, there is a certain window of time in which you have to receive that chemotherapy. If there's delay beyond that window, that chemotherapy is ineffective, which means you now have a higher risk of that cancer coming back. In particular, for surgery, that's even more important. Cancer surgery is not considered elective, where it can wait more than 30 days. Again, primarily because the longer you wait, the more the opportunity is for that cancer to grow and spread. So there are no delays in treatment from our end. The problem, of course, is the patients have to get to us in a timely fashion for that treatment to be effective. And what the study in the JAMA paper shows us is that there's a drop off of about 25 to 50% in the number of patients who are being diagnosed, which suggests that these patients are going to show up later and show up in more advanced stages than we're used to seeing them.
2: So that sounds like there may be a spike in cancer diagnoses perhaps later in COVID-19 or even when, when this uh, you know, clears, so to speak, if we can look forward to that.
3: Absolutely. I I mean, think we all expect an increase in the incidence of patients who have uh, skipped screening now during the pandemic and are going to show up later for medical care. And we can handle the increase in numbers. But what I worry more about is the impact that this delay is going to have on our chances to successfully treat those patients.
2: Is there anything that Mayo Clinic is doing in particular to make it safe for patients uh, to come have their cancer treatment during COVID-19?
3: Mayo is taking uh, what I would say maximum precautions. And even when we had our peak here in Arizona, there were very few cases that were secondary to transmission in the hospital. The majority of cases seen in hospital employees were in people who had picked up the virus, not in the hospital, but out in the community going about their daily lives which means that the hospital was actually a safer place to be than being at home or being outside and the main reason for that is because the level of precautions we had in the hospital were much more stringent than you would see out in the community universal masking exceptional hand hygiene after every patient contact uh, personal protective equipment or ppe and then isolation of any patients with COVID or even suspected of having COVID. So cancer patients, particularly those on chemotherapy, are a vulnerable population. So we go the extra mile to make sure that they receive their treatment in a safe fashion when they're in the hospital and that they're educated on the kind of precautions they need to take when they are at home.
2: And I've had a number of patients comment to me about how much they appreciated that Mayo is taking extra care Uh, with patients during this time and and they are not, um, haven't been upset about the screening process or about the extra time that it takes because they appreciate that level of concern. I wanted to ask you on a separate topic about flu vaccinations. If patients are concerned about a cancer diagnosis, should they have a flu vaccine? What are your recommendations in that regard?
3: If there is one year that the flu shot is even more important than usual, this is it. You may have read about concerns, uh, you know, a double whammy with the flu and the COVID doubling up in the winter months. And we may or may not have a COVID vaccine by the end of the year, but we will certainly have a flu vaccine. And I would encourage anyone listening to it, uh, to this podcast to get it and get it early. As an aside, if we continue to adhere to masking and hand hygiene and distancing guidelines, then as an added benefit, not only are we going to reduce the COVID numbers, we're also going to reduce the flu numbers.
2: That's a very positive um, thought for the day. Thank you so much for that. Our thanks to Dr. Nabil Wasif, the Chair of Surgical Oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this.
4: I'm Dr. Sand Kaka. Today, we will get a first-hand account of battling COVID-19 from a physician right here at Mayo Clinic. Joining us to share his story is Dr. D.P. Goyle, Regional Chair of the Practice for Mayo Clinic Health System. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Goyle. Dr. Goyle, you look great. Uh, How are you feeling? Feeling good. Um, You know, it
5: took a while, but um,
4: really feeling good now. Looking back, um, how did you contract uh, COVID-19?
5: Our you know, early 20s daughter is living with us this year and working outside the home. And uh, despite her employer's best efforts to you know, encourage masking, etc., she contracted COVID about the third week of July, uh, started developing symptoms, immediately isolated from my wife and myself, got tested, tested positive, quarantined in her room. And my wife and I were then in quarantine uh, for, I believe it was 10 days. On day nine, uh, just when I could see the light, um, I started developing uh, fevers, muscle aches and fatigue, got tested, was positive, and then again, quarantined you know, for my duration. So
4: you were all living in the same house at the same time?
5: yeah uh, we were all in the same house, and really, we were meticulous about quarantining and keeping her very separated from my wife and myself uh, and So I was very surprised when I developed symptoms. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, despite being exposed to two household members, never developed symptoms uh, and you know never was actually tested and never tested positive.
4: And so obviously with your quarantining in place, tell us the logistics of how that actually happened. Three of you in the same household. Um, How did you, well, try your best to ensure that you didn't sort of see each other in that way? We have space in our house where we have
5: a bedroom with a adjacent bathroom for, you know, we have two setups like that. And so it wasn't hard to find the space for us. I think the logistics Um, you know, around having, you know, your entire household housebound in terms of getting groceries, supplies, et cetera. Uh, So we were grateful to have friends and neighbors who were really very helpful in uh, helping with that. The other thing is, um, you know, a cooler uh, was very helpful outside our room, my room, so that I could have access to, you know, snacks and drinks, et cetera, when I needed
4: them without having to expose other people and then lots of wipes. But what about the sort of the the day-to-day practicalities, for example, of making a meal? How, how did you do that?
5: I was grateful to have my wife uh, be able to do so. Fortunately uh, she made enough food that uh, then my daughter who's now working from home, despite being cleared and, you know, fully back to normal was able to really help out and, you know, make sure I was taken care of.
4: So you alluded to a little bit about your symptoms. Can you tell us about how your symptoms started and just during the course of your uh, the illness of what you you felt like? It started
5: with, um, you know, a relatively low-grade fever, probably 101. Pretty significant muscle aches and fatigue. And those were the majority of my symptoms. I, I developed some shortness of breath about three or four days into it but never severe shortness of breath. Uh, I will say the remote monitoring program here was phenomenal. Uh, so I had a pulse ox. Uh, so I checked my uh, pulse ox twice a day. Um, and it did cause a little bit of panic when it decreased one day, um, but never got severe. I had about four to five days of, uh, sleeping about 13 to 15 hours a day. And then after that, just you know, gradually improving fatigue, really took about three weeks, um, slightly more than three weeks to resolve. So the duration really surprised me as well. And then the other thing I'll say is the change in taste, uh, and the impact that had on appetite and the um, appeal of food. Uh, So trying to maintain intake and calories was a little challenging.
4: Did you notice that change in taste straight away, or did that come on slowly?
5: No, it came on about uh, day three of symptoms.
4: And then you mentioned the remote monitoring program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What a wonderful program that is. So uh, they
5: sent a pulse ox um, and a thermometer, um, and then twice a day, information on symptoms and vital signs are entered into, the, into your portal. Uh, through an app. And anything that changes or if there are new symptoms, the group immediately calls, checks to see how things are, see if there needs to be any escalation in plans. Uh, So really, from a patient standpoint, um, it really provided a lot of reassurance around where I was in in terms of the severity of this disease and the fact that I had access to care
4: and you mentioned the Pulse Ox. Now, that's a monitoring device that you put on your finger or your ear to monitor your oxygen saturations, correct?
5: That's correct. Um, and that's uh, you know, because the lung symptoms of COVID can be severe um, and can cause pretty severe
4: pneumonias. So you mentioned about the duration of symptoms. Uh, what else surprised you about this experience? So the duration and the fact that it really knocked me down for about
5: three weeks, that's the first time an illness has really done that and i 'm a pretty healthy individual, uh, so I can only imagine for people with pre existing conditions uh, just how significant an illness this can be, especially if they were to develop some of the other longer term complications like myo- you know myocarditis, which is an infl- inflammation infection of the heart. This really is truly very different from a lot of the other viral illnesses we 've encountered, like the common cold or the flu
4: and obviously as a as a physician but also as a patient now. What advice do you have for people listening to this?
5: The advice I have um, is really twofold. Number one, really follow the guidelines in terms of quarantining. I think that by immediately isolating ourselves, quarantining, even though I contracted COVID in the household, uh, we fortunately didn't spread it to any co-workers or any patients uh, because we were very strict about quarantining immediately. The second piece of advice I have is, Develop a plan for how you're going to quarantine ahead of time, especially as kids are going back to school and there's the potential to see rises in the number of cases. I think it would be very helpful for people to have a quarantine plan in terms of the logistics, coordinating with neighbors, identifying space so that when, you know, if an individual from the household has to quarantine, um, you have all those pieces laid out ahead of time.
4: So, DP, anything else you'd like to add?
5: You know, it really emphasizes the importance of what we're doing in terms of, uh, you know, masking, distancing, hand hygiene as a society right now. The severity of this disease is pretty significant. uh, And I really do think that we're doing the right things. That said, we're not going to succeed and be able to open up the economy and do the things that we want to do to get back to normal unless everyone really adheres to these. So we all want the same thing. And I think it's just incumbent on all of us to do our part. Um, to adhere to the masking, distancing, uh, hand hygiene guidelines, and quarantining when the recommendations tell us that it's right
4: to do so. Our thanks to regional chair of the practice for the Mayo Clinic Health Systems, Dr. D.P. Goyle. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Goyle.
6: This is Dr. Tom Shives, co-host of Mayo Clinic Radio. You should know the COVID-19 virus creates symptoms that are similar to those you'd have with the flu. Fever, sore throat and dry cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, body pain, especially in the back and shoulders, and possible nausea and diarrhea. These symptoms can appear between 2 and 14 days after exposure. On average, they develop within 5 days. If you get these symptoms, stay home and call your health care provider for information about what to do next.
2: This is Tracy McRae from Mayo Clinic Radio with a reminder about what we
7: know about the COVID-19 virus's ability to survive on common surfaces. Here's Dr. Greg Poland, an infectious disease expert and head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group.
2: Anything that somebody who is infected touches, the virus can survive on that surface. It looks like plastic, stainless steel, tend to be surfaces where it lasts longer. All it says to us is you've got to practice good hand etiquette and sanitation. So you pump your gas, you sanitize your hands. You go out to shop, you don't touch your face, you don't come into your car until you've
1: sanitized your hands. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Did you know your kid could have an eating disorder if he or she is extremely picky? Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a Mayo Clinic child psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, says it's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. It's basically extreme picky eating. The food repertoire of those who have it is so limited that they can't maintain their body weight and they have health issues. She says it can be a fine line, though, between normal childhood behavior and extreme pickiness. She says your kid's weight goes on a curve. If they fall off their curve, that's when you start to worry. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if their curve is at the 5th percentile, the 50th percentile, or the 85th percentile. As long as your kid continues to track where he or she has always tracked, that's healthy. But it can be a problem if your kid loses weight and falls off his or her curve. In that case, Dr. Lebo says, you don't want to make mealtime World War III. She says if suddenly you're setting up a power struggle and demanding that they have to eat and you keep telling them they have to eat, they have to eat, you're kind of dooming yourself. It can be even trickier for picky teens, so she suggests getting professional help. In the meantime, she says parents should do all they can to get their kid to eat more of anything. Dr. Lebo says parents should be challenging picky eaters to eat bigger portions of the foods that are on their list of what they want to eat. She says if your kid falls off the curve, nutrition is not as important at that point. Their body is not using nutrition the same way. So it's really about getting their weight back up before you start trying to get them to eat kale or something like that. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
6: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. My co-host, family physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Tracy McRae is away. Dr. Cozine, nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me with you. So we're going to talk about ovarian cancer, and we have previously talked about it, and we've talked about what a uh, difficult disease it is to treat, and the fact that it is fortunately relatively uncommon. Only about 22,000 women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer every year. But the prognosis is suboptimal, not as good as we'd like it to be. And in fact, less than 50% of women live for five years after they're diagnosed.
8: How do doctors decide the best treatment? And what are some of the factors that influence the outcome in patients with ovarian cancer? Joining us in studio today is Mayo Clinic gynecologic oncologist surgeon, Dr. Amanika Kumar. Welcome, Dr. Kumar. Thank you so much for having me.
6: Good to have you back. Yeah. So uh, ovarian cancer. We know that uh, many women present uh, with late-stage disease. They're, it wasn't diagnosed early on when it might have been more curable. And why is that?
9: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges with ovarian cancer. And part of it is because it's rare. There's not a good screening test. So we've done lots of studies looking for screening tests similar to like what we do for mammography and breast cancer or colonoscopy for colon cancer pap smears for cervical cancer cancer, but for ovarian cancer there's not a good effective screening test and the second issue is there's not a lot of symptoms so the symptoms that people have are really vague and i think this presents a really big diagnostic challenge for people like our primary care doctors Mm -hmm. um, where patients come in and they have vague complaints like abdominal pain bloating Sometimes they get full kind of early. And who hasn't had that symptom right. over the last month? Right. And so trying to distinguish... You know, I, I kind of in some ways have the easy part where they already come to me with a diagnosis. But if you're a family care doc or a primary care doc and you're seeing this patient, you have to figure out, is this the problematic kind of abdominal pain or is this just normal daily abdominal right. pain? Right. And when they come to see me, they're usually pretty
8: undifferentiated and but worried about ovarian cancer because they do hear about this sort of statistic that, you know, fewer than 50 percent of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer live for five years after the diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about those statistics. Why is it? so grim.
9: Yeah, so at the end of the day, even though we do have some treatments that are effective and we can usually, but not always, get patients into remission, because of the late stage of diagnosis, we have disease that's usually spread throughout the abdomen, sometimes outside of the abdomen into the chest cavity or other parts of the body. And so treatment is challenging and cancer cells can evade the, the traditional treatments of surgery and chemotherapy and the disease often recurs. So while I can get, someone can get into remission with our traditional therapies, their risk of it coming back and then not being curable is quite high.
6: Dr. Cozine, has any a woman, a female, ever come into your office and and you said to yourself, I bet she's got ovarian cancer? And if so, what was it about the, the history or maybe your examination that made you suspect that?
8: I've had it on my differential before. And actually, I have yet to diagnose ovarian cancer. Um, I've That's thought about recurrence. It exactly. Yeah. Although the, the woman who is postmenopausal, who is perhaps, you know, late 50s, early 60s, who has new bloating or new early satiety that's being full shortly after eating and really hadn't had this symptom before. So that kind of raises my feelers a little bit. And the main thing that I want to do is not ignore those types of symptoms and say, oh, we should look into this. And so I'll usually order, for example, pelvic ultrasound.
9: Yeah. And that's really important. And like you said, I think it's becoming more common in the public discourse Mm -hmm. to know about these symptoms. But I, I think there's a lot of people who didn't even know there were symptoms of ovarian cancer. A lot of patients come to me and say, well, if I have so much cancer, why don't I have pain or why don't I have more symptoms? And I think patients then, the lack of symptoms, the lack of sort of screening tests that have shown anything, then also lead to the sense of shock when they say, well, I was just healthy and doing my normal life mm-hmm. and it turns out I have an advanced cancer
6: but there's plenty of room for the ovarian cancer to grow in the abdomen before it actually pushes on anything enough that it causes symptoms right
9: exactly right
6: so when you talk about treatment um you they come to you with a diagnosis how do you outline the options and how do you and the patient decide what's best for them
9: yeah that's a great question so you know If we're talking about just advanced ovarian cancer, which is the majority of patients, so patients who are stage 3C or 4, which means that the disease has left the pelvis and has spread throughout the abdomen and sometimes into the chest cavity, Mm. I tell patients that for the most part, treatment is a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. And there are some nuances on how we decide, do we do surgery first? We call that primary cytoreductive surgery, meaning surgery that goes in and tries to take out as much of the tumor as possible. And then we follow that with chemotherapy. So that's option one. A second option is to start with chemotherapy, let the tumor shrink, do surgery, and then do some more chemotherapy after. Of course, there's always the option where there might be a patient who says, I I don't want to treat this. Mm -hmm. You know, I have an advanced cancer. I've lived my life. And, And it's a pretty rare case. But it's important that patients know, you know, when you get a diagnosis like this and you feel really robbed of your control, that really you are still the person who gets to make decisions about your health and your body. And there are some patients who will choose not to do any treatment.
8: So what are some of the factors that are within a patient's control, for example, what they eat or how active they are that might actually influence the treatment or how they respond to treatments?
9: Yeah, and this is the area we look at a lot. So the thing is, what I always tell patients is for everything we do, there's risks and benefits, especially for surgery. You know, there are a lot of risks with surgery, but there's a lot of benefit. We think that if we can get someone to the operating room and take out as much disease as possible up front as a first step that we can lead to the longest benefit from a survival standpoint. So the longest survival. But there's a cost to that surgery. This is highly complicated surgery. It includes operating in all four quadrants of the abdomen, meaning I'm gonna is not just doing a hysterectomy, but it's often doing complicated surgery up around the liver, around the spleen, in the upper part of the abdomen. It usually requires a bowel resection sometimes these surgeries can last six to eight hours with a high rate of blood loss. And so that being said, it's also very effective surgery. And so there's two things that I look at. Number one, I want to make sure I can do a meaningful surgery. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go into the operating room and then leave the operating room having put someone through a lot of risk and a lot of surgery without being able to take out the majority of disease. Mm -hmm. So the first is I want to make sure, is her disease resectable? Can I take out the most amount of disease that I can. The second question is, is she fit enough for surgery? Mm-hmm. Because there are a high risk of complications, and so we want to avoid complications. And we also want to make sure that if you were to have a complication, you can recover from mm-hmm. that complication. So we look at lots of factors. It's not a perfect science, but we look at things like age, You know, how old is the person. Um, We look at the albumin and that is a nutritional marker Mm -hmm. and it can be very affected by cancer and the fluid that develops in the abdomen. We look at their other comorbidities, Mm -hmm. so other medical history that they have, like heart disease or clots in their leg and lungs and how that influences their overall being. We look at their weight, and then we also look at their functional status. Mm -hmm. You know, how fit is the patient? Does she do all of her activities? Does she walk around? Or has the disease caused a lot of debilitation? Is this someone who really can't even get out of bed and Mm -hmm. can't really function? If they can't function, it's going to be really hard to get through a big surgery.
6: A lot of factors to consider. Now, I know you have a particular interest in sarcopenia and the effect it has on a patient's prognosis. Tell us what sarcopenia is.
9: Yeah. So this is a new area. So sarcopenia is a loss of skeletal muscle mass along with a loss of physical function. And so it represents something that is age-related and it's cancer-related, but it's not a perfect correlation. And we're interested in seeing how do patients' muscle mass uh, affect their overall outcomes, and then how can we influence that muscle mass and potentially change outcomes?
6: All right. Ovarian cancer, it's often diagnosed late. Less than 50% of women live for five years after a diagnosis. A thorough assessment of the patient is absolutely necessary to do determine the appropriate treatment plan and maintaining good muscle strength avoiding sarcopenia and good nutrition can improve the prognosis in women with late stage disease which unfortunately most of them are
8: our thanks to mayo clinic gynecologic surgeon dr amanika kumar we're going to take a short break when we come back we'll discuss asthma in adults
6: you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
8: And I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cosine.
6: Asthma, it can happen at any time during your life. Now, for some people, they get it as a child and they have it forever. For others who have had it as a child, it may get better during puberty, but then it can come back later in life.
8: And yet for some, asthma may not develop until they're adults. How does that happen? Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic allergy and asthma expert, Dr. James Lee. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Lee.
7: Great to be here. Dr. Lee, good to see you
8: asthma can strike at any age. Tell us about that.
7: Well, Tom, you got it right. So asthma can't start in childhood. It can come and go. So the adults that we see with asthma sometimes have had asthma since childhood, but others uh, can develop asthma in adulthood. So even adults who have never had a breathing problem, never had
6: asthma before as an adult can show up with asthma.
7: Well, that would be correct. And uh, we think the asthma develops as a combination between with genetics, environment, and infection. Um, We do see a lot of children with asthma, but adults with asthma can have asthma start in midlife or even later in life. So tell
6: us when we use the term asthma, what actually do we mean? What really happens inside the lung?
7: Well, honestly, there are probably different forms of asthma, but the word is used to describe a lung condition that involves the airways or the bronchial tubes. And the characteristic of asthma, Tom, is that the bronchial tubes are extra sensitive. Uh, They can become inflamed and narrowed, and that can cause shortness of breath, wheezing, and other asthma symptoms
6: shortness of breath, wheezing, what, what else might a patient well, experience? Well, sometimes
7: cough, uh, sensation of chest tightness, that would be typical.
6: And also there's this, uh, isn't there an overproduction or secretion of, of mucus, thick mucus that can also contribute to the difficulty breathing?
7: That can be a big factor for, for many patients. So a cough, whether it's a nonproductive or a productive cough, can be a part of asthma as well.
6: Now, is this the body overreacting for some reason?
7: Well, that can be part of it. I think we sort of think of the condition as an inflammatory condition involving the airway, so it's inflammation. Uh, The reactions can occur because there are asthma triggers that can cause the bronchospasm or the narrowing of the bronchial tubes. Uh, Often we think about uh, allergy-causing substances Mm -hmm. like cats or dogs or mold. Other triggers could be just environmental smoke, a smoky room or a restaurant can do it too.
8: So a lot of things that we could potentially have some control over, so thinking about smoking or not being in smoke or pets. Tell us about some of the ways to treat asthma.
7: Well, we always try to identify the specific triggers for an individual patient with an Mm -hmm. asthma, Elizabeth, and once those triggers are identified for a particular patient, then we can logically and Mm -hmm. reasonably give them advice about what to avoid the point being if we we don't ask people to avoid substances that are not triggers for them personally sure
6: i I wanted to ask you one other thing about the symptoms uh in the disease itself Uh, because wheezing uh coughing shortness of breath is one thing but an asthma attack even maybe your first one could
7: be life-threatening can it It, asthma attacks can be life-threatening sometimes it's the first one but some but often, it's not the first one. It's someone who has, ha- has has known asthma, perhaps, and has had asthma attacks in the past, and then they experience the one big one. You mm-hmm. forgot their inhaler, or, or how does it happen? Well, uh, not, some, are these well, <laughs> in- inhalers really effective? <laughs> the inhalers can be helpful. For, mm-hmm. for people who we see with asthma, we always review you know, what how to recognize an impending asthma attack mm-hmm. and how to deal with it. So... Ideally, patients are diagnosed, they have a plan. We call it an asthma action plan, so they know what to do. For other people, though, maybe they don't have a plan, maybe they don't have medications, or maybe it's just a major asthma attack that really requires hospital treatment.
8: We try to make it really, really simple for patients thinking about that asthma action plan to so talk about the green zone when they're mm-hmm. well-controlled, mm-hmm. the yellow zone, when they're maybe starting to get in a little bit of trouble. Maybe they went over to a friend's house who has a cat.
7: Mm-hmm. What would
8: you do in that situation? Or the red zone, which are those really scary moments where you're needing more emergency-type medications.
7: The asthma action action plan really should be individualized to the patient. Mm-hmm. So some action plans are pretty simple. It's mm-hmm. who to call, when to call 911 possibly went to use your rescue inhaler or when to use some oral prednisone.
6: Even when they come to you as an adult, is this a fairly easy diagnosis to make?
7: Well, sometimes it's pretty easy and straightforward. There's a sort of a prototypic type of asthma presentation. Someone who has shortness of breath, wheezing, maybe triggered by cold or exercise. If they have an inhaler and they use it from time to time and it seems to help, maybe they have some seasonal allergies mm-hmm. too or asthma in the family, then many physicians can make that diagnosis Uh, usually it's confirmed with laboratory testing like breathing tests there are other situations in adults especially Mm -hmm. where there's chest pain some trouble breathing uh, but it's not so clear so we think well could it be another you know lung condition do they smoke could they have a heart condition so sometimes it's not that simple tom So when we talk about
6: uh, treatment for asthma patients, uh, we all know about inhalers because we've seen people use them, but you also have medications that you can use, and how do you decide who needs what?
7: Right. So there's actually a growing repertoire of asthma treatments for patients, and we still really use a lot of the asthma inhalers, and I think your listeners will want to know that there are inhalers that... I guess we call asthma controllers that we Mm -hmm. instruct patients to use every single day to quiet down that inflammation in the bronchial tubes. And then there's the albuterol inhaler that's sometimes called a rescue inhaler that's used as needed or for asthma attacks. There are also pills for asthma. Mm -hmm. Um, There are injections for, different kinds of injections for asthma. There's steroid medicines Mm -hmm. for asthma. Most physicians, especially specialists, Uh, have those treatments available and you know one principle that we try to apply tom is we want to get the right medicine for the treatment for the patient but generally that might mean the least amount of medicine for asthma that leads to excellent control of their symptoms.
8: Right.
6: Do you see patients uh, who yeah, asthma of and, and follow Frequently. up? Yeah. And I
8: say one of the most important things that I try to convey to people that are on slightly more complicated regimens than just the inhaler as needed is that the medicine that they are using to control their asthma may not make them feel better that day. And so it's really important that we're using it to control the symptoms overall so they have fewer of these big exacerbations or asthma attacks.
9: Well,
7: that's an excellent point because mm-hmm. a, a lot of our management time and effort with patients is tried is trying to prevent problems mm-hmm. and preventive management doesn't always feel good at the time because you're trying right. to prevent symptoms prevent mm-hmm. attacks
8: and these medicines can often be very expensive for patients and so it Sometimes I find that patients are trying to save them, and so what I tell them is, look, this is going to be a lot cheaper than the hospital cost if you are uncontrolled and have to come in and be seen multiple times or even in an emergency setting. Is
6: asthma seasonal at all? You you mentioned cold as a potential trigger. Do you see more cases of asthma in Minnesota in
7: the winter? So asthma often is seasonal, and it can, and it can be seasonal for different reasons, right? So one type of seasonal asthma is, is if someone has allergies, and the spring pollen or the fall ragweed pollen kicks in, then they may have more asthma during that time of year. There's the cold air and you know, in Minnesota, where (laughs) if someone's out there shoveling snow, their asthma may well be triggered during that activity because of the cold and the exercise. And then there's cold season, meaning catching cold season. (laughs) So catching a cold is a major trigger for asthma.
6: All right, Dr. James Lee, an asthma expert at the Mayo Clinic. Obviously, asthma, I guess, can strike at any age. Even adults who have never had asthma before can get it later in life. Asthma can be caused or triggered by multiple factors, and there are multiple ways to treat it. As we've just heard, there are inhalers, medications which you can give either by mouth or intravenously. And obviously, if you do have asthma, it's important to stay in touch with your doctor and follow up.
8: Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Asthma and Allergy Expert, Dr. James Lee.
7: Thanks for having me.
6: And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.